American soccer fans, what's up? Welcome to episode 15 of the Stars and Stripes FC podcast. It's Donald here. Hope you had a wonderful holiday weekend. Mine was spent recharging my batteries in the hills of western New York with some of my soccer family. It was a great time, incredibly relaxing. You know, self-care is these days are needed more than ever, and that meant no episode last week. Sorry about that. But I am back, and now there's a lot of news to get to. We will discuss the MLS's back tournament and all of the problems that have resulted from it ahead of us beginning this evening as we record on Wednesday. We will also get into the NWSL Challenge Cup and all the great soccer that's being played there. After the break, we will discuss the recent play of Christian Pulisic and how he's becoming a megastar before our own eyes. And finally, I will end with some brief comments on the recent anniversaries of the 2015 and 2019 World Cup champion U.S. Women's National Teams and my fond memories of both tournaments. We start, however, with the MLS is Back tournament, which is set to debut Wednesday evening when Orlando City hosts Inter-Miami. But I'm I'm not going to lie to you. While I'm going to watch the games, I really don't think these games should be happening. Most of these teams have players who have tested positive for the coronavirus and the preseason training that has led up to this tournament. And one team, FC Dallas, had so many COVID cases that they were withdrawn from the tournament on Monday. They're not playing at all. Games have been rescheduled all over the place because of Nashville also having a slew of positive cases and Toronto FC not arriving at the MLS bubble in Orlando until Tuesday. Players and staff have been sick inside the bubble, and the bubble is centered in the middle of the biggest hotspot in America, Orlando, Florida. Cases are skyrocketing all over America, and each team has been exposed to this virus, both of their home markets and now in this bubble. Players have even expressed their concerns over being safe inside the bubble. And even some players, like LAFC's Carlos Vela, they're not making the trip at all. They're out. It's just not worth it, y'all. I mean, I love Major League Soccer. I was thrilled that they had figured out a way to make a tournament work. But the selection of Orlando always left people skeptical, and all of those people have been proven right. The bubble has been compromised, and we're sacrificing the health and safety of players for a five-week tournament for, for what? TV money? They're blowing through hundreds of tests each day to make sure they know when people are sick, but we still have locales in this country that don't have enough tests. Keep in mind that because of all the quarantines and the positive tests and the travel, many of these teams haven't had but a handful of trainings in the last two to three weeks. They were supposed to have a full month of preseason before this. And some teams haven't even been able to practice in several days because of their quarantines. That means that these guys aren't going to be in shape. Injuries are going to be a factor. And above all, we have to expect we're going to be seeing, at the very base, some messy soccer. All of this to protect TV money. Now, there are some of you out there who will think, well, if you don't like it, don't watch. That's not the point. If the games are played, I'm going to watch and support the league and the players and and watch the sports, so to speak. We've been waiting for sports to come back. If sports are on TV, we'll watch it. But that doesn't mean I can't also care about the health and well-being of all those players and the coaches and the staff who are down there to do all this so we can have a little entertainment. In the end, I hope the league gets it together and works overtime to make sure the bubble is secured from the virus and that these players can just concentrate on playing soccer. 
I will watch, and I will hope for the players' sake that they remain healthy. But right now, as the tournament is mere hours from beginning, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel safe. And because of that, it doesn't seem worth it. Shifting gears to the women, the NWSL Challenge Cup has been going on for a little over a week now, and it has been fantastic to watch. The concerns that we had out there about the players entering the bubble and remaining healthy have so far been handled, and more importantly, the play has been terrific. I've really enjoyed what I've seen out there in the field in Utah. The North Carolina Courage has been a class of the tournament so far, going 3-0, and we kind of expected that, but we were hoping that some team would probably you know, be up there with them. But the Houston Dash, Utah Royals, and the Washington Spear each have a win and a draw, and each team in the tournament has earned at least one result so far, which is pretty good. We have about five days left in the preliminary round of play for the Challenge Cup before we seed the teams and we go to the knockout stage. But what have the teams and leagues done to keep them safe? We also had one team pull out of the tournament a few days before it opened. The Orlando Pride had 10 positive COVID tests that were later determined to be possible false positives. That was a very messy situation in itself and very confusing. But the end result is it left the team out of the tournament. However, I will I will give credit to the Pride social media accounts. They have been actively following all the action and I love that they're still involved in the tournament despite the fact that they're not playing. And I also love that MLS players are also tuning in to watch. They're talking about it. They're keeping the conversation going. The times leave something to be desired, but I, I get why there are 12.30 p.m. and 10 p.m. Eastern Time kickoffs. They're set up to avoid the heat in Utah, and that makes sense. The 10 p.m. Eastern starts are right when the sun is setting in Utah, so we, we've if you've tuned in, you've seen the sun glare that, uh, for those of you who are used to watching games at Audi Field like I am, you kind of get that same vibe. But as this tournament continues, I commend the NWSL and the players for giving us some quality soccer in a safe way. And I hope they all remain safe. If you're not tuning in to CBS All Access for these games, you're truly missing out. It has been a glorious time to watch these teams play. And I really hope that the rest of the tournament can give us as many fireworks as we've seen thus far. Coming up, we will talk about Christian Pulisic's incredible run of play, and we look back at the 2015 and 2019 Women's World Cup champions. More after this. We are back on the Stars and Stripes FC podcast, and it is time to discuss our guy, Christian Pulisic, our son. The Premier League began its restart on June 17th, and Pulisic has emerged as the star of the league so far. In Chelsea's first five Premier League matches, his appearances have gone like this. Goal, goal, drawn penalty, drawn penalty, goal. Pretty good. And his goals have been insane. His play has been otherworldly. We go back to his goal against Manchester City. What a hesitation move he made 
on Benjamin Mindy to just work his way past him, accelerate down to field the goal, and then leave us with a clinical finish. Against Crystal Palace on Tuesday, he collects the ball from Willian on the left side of the box, makes a quick move to his left, and then he rockets a left-footed shot near post into the upper 90. Insane. I mean, they didn't teach that in my soccer camps. We are looking at the emergence of a megastar, and that megastar is American. A few weeks ago, we didn't know if Chelsea head coach Frank Lampard would give Christian Pulisic the minutes he needed to show and prove. Now, we really don't know how Lampard can keep him off the field or take him off the field. He has seven goals this year in the Premier League. He's been playing like the best player on the field no matter who Chelsea plays. He's aggressive. He's finding open spaces. He's controlling the ball with his feet. He's making quick, decisive moves. And he's finishing with finesse and power. And when he's not scoring, he's the most dangerous player on the field. Every time he gets the ball, he makes the defense have to retreat in an effort to stop him. An effort that more often than not is just not enough to stop our guy. All of this is building confidence for a 21-year-old. And it's amazing to see. He's elevating his game in front of our eyes. And you can't be anything but proud of that. And people are paying attention not just here, but across the pond. Pulisic was already a megastar to us. Now, he's starting to become a world megastar. He's not there yet, but he's well on the path. And that's only going to open doors for everyone and have more eyes on more young American players. The world is Christian's to run. And I'm looking forward to seeing his meteoric rise Finally, and I know this has been a short show so far, but I wanted to reflect on the U.S. Women's National Team who celebrated two anniversaries over the past few days. First, this past Sunday marked the fifth anniversary since the team won its third star at the 2015 World Cup in Canada. We all remember that final against Japan where Carly Lord just went off. She, she scored a hat trick inside the first 16 minutes of the match. Lauren Holiday added another. It ended up being a 5-2 victory, and for that team, it was an enormous weight lifted off their shoulders. Most of the team at that point had only seen heartbreak. They, the team had bowed out in the quarterfinals in 2003 and 2007, and then lost on penalties in the 2011 World Cup Final to Japan. Well, 2015 was the rematch. It was for revenge, and the team had exacted some revenge against Japan in the 2012 Olympics with the win in the gold medal match, but... They really got the one that mattered at Vancouver on July 5th, 2015. It was an all-time moment for the program. They solidified their position as the best women's national team program of all time with their third win. It was so much fun to be with the team at the start of the World Cup when they played two matches in Winnipeg. I love being there for a week and getting to know the city and the people well. An underrated city. It's quiet, but it has some really cool spots and food, and it was great to call that a home base during the World Cup. One of my favorite trips. But that team overcame the obstacles, overcame everything to finally emerge as champion. And then, just yesterday, Tuesday, marked the one-year anniversary of the women's national team triumph over the Netherlands to win the 2019 Women's World Cup, earning in that process that fourth star above their crest. 
This tournament was personal for me. This was the one that saw me head to France for just about the entire tournament. I landed in-country the morning after the opening match and followed the team until the very end. This women's national team is my favorite soccer team of all time. It's, it's one thing to go for a title and win it, but it's another beast to enter the tournament as the favorite, the defending champions, and literally have the entire world aiming to take you down. Everyone said the team had lost a step, that they were relying on older players, that the younger players wouldn't step up, they said the world had caught up to them. They started by beating Thailand so bad, 13-0, that fans complained that they celebrated too much. They went through Chile in their second match, and then for the rest of the tournament, they conquered all of Europe. The same confederation that thought they had several candidates to dethrone the queens of soccer saw their quest end when the queens were who they said they were. Sweden, Spain, France, England, and the Netherlands were the final opponents for the women's national team on the way to that fourth star. And being there for the whole tournament was incredible, but throughout the tournament, three things stood out to me. First, it was the march to the match on Father's Day for the Chile match, where we did something that the police there said had never happened before. We shut down Paris. We filled the streets. Not a patch of concrete was showing. Fathers there with their daughters, mothers there with their sons, friends with friends, family with family. It was a beautiful sight, and I was fortunate to be at the front of that pack to soak it all in. We knew in that march, we knew there was nothing stopping the U.S. women's national team that day. And sure enough, on Father's Day, in front of a lot of family and friends, the women's national team dispatched Chile pretty easily. Next, fast forward to the match against France a team that had beaten the United States back in January and a friendly in La Havre. It's crazy that because FIFA messed up the dates that this match was a quarterfinal instead of the final. It should have been the final. That match is the greatest match I've ever seen live. Period. End of story. The march to the match on that day, epic. Over 10,000 people. The police said they had never seen so many away fans together at any match at the Parc de Prince. I know. I helped set it up. The stadium was about 50-50. The noise was indescribable. Back and forth. Back and forth. And the play in the field was the same way. Thrilling. Back and forth action. Two powerhouses. Slugging it out. The United States won that day. And everyone in the stadium knew that this team was actually destined for something great. And one thing I'll always remember is the supporters for France wishing us luck as we left the stadium, as we went back to our hotels, telling us to go win the whole thing. Now that greatness was achieved in the final, my third thing that stood out. We saw the player who dominated the tournament score in Mega Rapino. We saw our Roosevelt bloom before our very eyes with that wizardry on the final goal. And you saw every single American player on that field had seven gears when the Dutch only had five. They wanted it so, so bad. A whole lifetime of working for that moment. A whole month in France, which was undergoing its biggest heat wave ever. Every match, except for the first one, was well over 95 degrees. And many of those games in Lyon and in Paris were in the 105 degree range. Despite all that, and every other team trying to come at them, and some of the negativity that they were even receiving from some folks back here in the United States... They overcame it all. 
When that final whistle blew, I cried immediately, profusely, tears of joy. People were screaming and cheering and hugging. I cried. It was an emotional moment to see a goal be achieved. I landed in Paris last year on June 8th with the single goal of watching our team lift that trophy in Lyon. Those women came to France with that same goal. On July 7th, I got to see that very goal achieved, to see their lifetime goal achieved. They had their fourth star, and I saw my favorite team of all time win what they worked so hard to achieve. It was a beautiful moment, and it's why I always remember July 7th as one of my favorite U.S. soccer anniversaries. A year later, it was fun to look back at that trip, look back on all those moments, and wear the jersey of the champions. I can't wait to go to Australia and New Zealand for a month in 2023 to watch that very same team go for number five. That's going to do it for episode 15 of the Stars and Stripes FC podcast. Again, if you have questions or topics you wish to hear discussed, go ahead and drop us a line, ssfcpodcast at gmail.com. Also, it helps to subscribe and to tell your friends, so please do that. We really appreciate it. As more soccer is being played, there will be more to discuss. Enjoy all the matches, and we'll talk to you soon.